we're looking at what this morning, we're looking this morning at, there are two overarching themes to the message. One is the message of reconciliation. That's really, that's really what we're talking about in this chapter of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The drive of what we're looking at today or the undergirding of that message is this title, the motivation for ministry or motivation for ministry. What makes us do what we do? What makes us live like we live? What makes us make the decisions that we do to navigate life the way we do? And this is an important message today. It's a message that needs passion. And I'm always concerned about how I communicate. Forgive me for taking a moment to focus on me. Um, But one, I appreciate prayer. I'm kind of stopped up from here to here. And I don't think I have a cold. I think it's all the... You guys, you guys saw that windstorm, right? And I, since then, I've kind of had that. But in my communication, when there is passion, I don't want my passion to come across as anger. Okay? So I'm passionate about what I'm sharing, but who cares if I'm passionate about it? You need to ask yourself this morning, why are you here? What motivates you to do what you do. And in this, my hope is to point you to these scriptures that will help you to ask the question in your life, what has God called me to in this life before I see him face to face? Remember that back of this passage is Paul saying that knowing, the, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, and right before that is the accountability that someday I'm going to stand before God. So as a church congregation, as a body of believers, let's do something. Let's read together these five verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15, and we're focused on verses 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15, which you read out loud with me. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause." For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So under this title, the motivation for ministry, there are two major points, constrained and consecrated. Those are what we're focusing on this morning. So we come to verse 14. And in all of this, there is this this giving of their lives, this persuasion of men uh, to know the mystery of the gospel. That is, that Christ is the Savior of the world and has offered to redeem them. And we are the ones who carry that message about knowing then that there is an accountability for every soul to Jesus. There is a pressure in us, but that pressure comes from something that God has done for us. And so we find in verse 14, 
For the love of Christ constraineth us. Let's take a moment. Let's do, let's do a little study on this word constrained. Constraining has the idea of controlling. In many translations, they use the more modern word of control uh, instead of constrain. And it's fair. It's fair. I particularly think uh, the King James translation is rich in using the word constrain because it isn't con only control. Uh, there is illustration along with it. But to control, what does it mean to control? Uh, now, I apologize. I just used this illustration, but I think it's a good one. And I'm going to use it again. So, uh, because I have a five-year-old, <clears throat> I, I see this, and, I, and my, maybe that's why it jumps to my mind so easily. Uh, I am trying to help our five-year-old learn things that we have been working on with him for a long time. Now, does anybody know the difficulties of teaching a five-year-old boy? What is, what is the number one deficiency of teaching a five-year-old boy? What's the number one deficiency? Yes. So what does, am I right? Okay. You want to come preach this part? <laughs> Samantha, I'm going to turn it all over to you. If it wasn't for the Bible telling you. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so, when I'm trying to teach my little guy something, and my family knows or two, thing, <laughs> two things I'm doing continually. John 3.16 and how to count to 20. That's, uh, uh, I'm not kidding, they'll tell you. Uh, but when I'm trying to teach him, I have him come stand right in front of me. Let me ask you, is that enough? <laughs> no, it's not enough. So many times I will have to grab his little cheeks. And I will put his little eyeballs right in front of mine. Let me ask you, is that enough? No, it's not. I've got that little face right here in front of mine, and his eyes are going bleep, 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 bleep. <laughs> Do you know how difficult it is not to communicate frustration and anger? John 3, 16. <laughs> Repeat it. <laughs> So you understand, John 3.16 is an angry verse. <laughs> uh, and I, listen, my family thinks I don't know. But I watch them during our devotions while I'm doing this. Here's what they do. They're my support group. Here's what they do. <laughs> it's true. It's so true. And I just kind of looked at the heavens, Lord, what do I do? I can't win here. So, <laughs> he's got a great mom. <laughs> uh, all right. So, that's the control. The control literally is that. That, that constraining is a control. It grabs. It focuses. It directs. That is exactly the idea. But the reason I like the word constraining is because the idea of constraining has 
another sense of not just control, but literally being squeezed. And the squeezing is illustrated by a cattle chute where a herd, a sheep or cattle, whatever, is being directed and funneled down to where they go through one at a time. And especially if you know anything about sheep, we've been, I forget who it was, I think it was Brother Stewart who was talking about sheep. If you've ever watched what they have to do to sheep to help protect sheep, I mean, they fully will immerse those guys to, to dip them in different things to protect them. They can only do that as they constrain and squeeze them in. But what is, it, what is that ultimately? It is control. But it's a squeezing control that takes those animals wherever they were and puts them in a focus to where they need to be. And that's the idea. It is the love of Christ that squeezes me in and focuses my life. It is the love of Christ that takes my mind, takes my attention, and squeezes me in to control what I'm doing in my life. Now, I know that in this, it's difficult for us because I'm using a word that I think, honestly, is a theological problem for modern-day Christianity. And I don't know that I should say modern-day Christianity. Because this is given throughout time and ages is inspired from the Word of God that God tells us we need to know this. So in other words, I think every generation has to reconcile this. I just don't know that we're reconciling it well today. And the control is that God is directing in our lives to quite literally control the navigation of what we're doing, how we're doing it, and what we're doing in this vapor of a life that God has given. Now, this is, there's an application to this. In other words, this isn't just something to know in my head. There's an application to this, and that's the rub. You see, you can come in this place, and you can amen the theology. You can say, hey, that doctrine sounds right, but its application is so invasive. Its application is God expects, are you ready? God expects to control your life. That's what I think needs to happen. The amen at the end of that. Again, I think it's fair to say that every human being across time struggles with this concept. So in that respect, it's not new to this generation. But each one of us, here we are as a corporate body. But I'm really driving this down to the individual in that seat where you are and every last one of us. It is God's expectation that we are controlled by him. But Paul is saying this is a control of love. And I think what 
this is my understanding of this passage. When it says the love of Christ constrains us, it is the love that Christ has displayed particularly for me, yes, to the world, particularly for me, that captivates and controls my life. That gives me the motivation for doing what I'm doing with my life. Now, for this, I'm going to take us to several passages. But that first one would be 1 John 3, 1 John 3, 16, and then Romans 5. First John chapter 3, verse 16, it's a great verse to remember because you know John 3, 16. But 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16 is a lovely verse as well. Then here it is. You have your Bible there? Let's read it. You got it? I hear pages turning. I'm going to give you a second. Let's read it together. By the way, um, we read together because I believe that's part of worship of God, that when we do it as a body. It's how we express unity to the Father uh, and give glory to Him. So 1 John 3.16, if, if you can and can read it with me, let's do that now. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Do you get the two together? You get the two together? So this is how we know, perceive the love of God. Because He laid down His life for us. Amen? Do you deserve the love of God in your life? Do you deserve the forgiveness he offers? Do you deserve the kindness, the grace, the mercy, the future that he has for us in heaven? Do you deserve any of that? But yet here we are theologically in that position. That is cool. And it's better, I w again, it's times like that. I wish I was a better preacher. Because this is powerful stuff. You and I know the love of God because of what he did for us. And then he even goes on further in that verse alone and says, that then motivates me because by his example, by his example, I understand what he wants me to be. Now, do we do this? I'm going to tell you, I think we struggle. Yeah? We struggle. We struggle with this because, well, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how mean they were to me. I mean, they passed me in the hallway and didn't even say hi. Or whatever. Or maybe they did something really mean to you. I don't know what it might be. But we, we then live under the banner of, I am justified to live in a way that doesn't look like the love of Jesus. No, you are not. If the love of God was dependent upon our being worthy of it, we would not have it. So Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. Romans 5, 6 through 8. You know verse 8 well. But listen to the love of God in your life. Are you appreciative of the love of God today? I hope, again, I, I wish I was better at being able to do this. I, I, this is where if, if I could have any charismaticism to my life and do cartwheels on the stage, I'd do it. It'd be really funny to see because um, I'm a little off-center in my, anyway, all right. So, um, but this, this is a major motivating factor for us. Think about God's love for you. 
Think about his commitment to your life. Think about how he's shown it. Romans 5, 6 through 8. I'm going to read it for us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ did something. He died for who? That little un at the front of godly. He died for the ungodly. Amen. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die at peradventure. For a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth, what's the other word for commendeth? Demonstrated, showed. God commendeth his love toward us. How? And that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. Amen? So the gospel here this morning means that there are some that think that there's no way God would ever accept me. Bad doctrine. Bad doctrine. That's not what the Bible teaches. And he doesn't tell you he accepts you because you're worth it. He accepts you when you come to him because he is a God of love, grace, and mercy. There's not a saved person in this room that wasn't saved under that same banner. Can all God's people say amen to that? To help those who are thinking, I'm not good enough. None of us are good enough. It's not about our goodness. It's about His grace and His love. And in that, He displays this. And Paul comes back to, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ squeezes me in. In other words, after all he's done for me, how can I do less than give him my best and live for him eternally after all he's done for me? So has the Lord done a lot for you? So I come to this question often. It's, it's again, it's maybe a broken record. But where would you be without the love of God in your life? Where would you be? If God had not been merciful to you. Now, by the way, we're talking about, just think about this. We're talking about the little scope of the here and now, where would you be? But do you understand, again, doctrinally, the scope of where you're going to be because of this doctrine? Do you get that? That we have hope, that we have a future that we have a promise that we're going to be with the Lord forever and it's going to be his pleasure for all of eternity to show his grace to us. Why? Because that's who he is. That's amazing. So what this is at its core is that because I have been redeemed, because I have been purchased, because I understand how lost I was and how in the dark that I was, I understand the gravity of the desperate position I was in and the consequence that I was laid to, that I would be damned forever and lost without God for all of eternity. My, I had a, one of my children ask me this question to, this last week and they said, Dad, for the people that die without Christ, do they go to hell for a time? And do they just exist on forever? So my conversation in my office with one of my children this week is just this. We have been created to be eternal souls. 
That is how God has made every one of us walking around in this shell. And what's inside this shell is only going to be in one of two places. And I don't care. I, I'm not trying to placate every other religion in the world. I'm just telling you the truth according to the Bible. There is no purgatory. There is no place of in-between. It's one or the other. You're going to be with the Lord. You're going to be without Him. The place with the Lord is what the Bible calls heaven. Eventually a new earth and all that. You're going to be with the Lord forever. But to be lost without Him is to be lost forever in what is called initially hell, but then emptied into the lake of fire. And it is horrific. It is tragic. And all the, the sin and disease and sickness and corruption in the world screams that we need a Savior. And He's told you who He is. So no, you're not made to live in this world forever. You're made for someplace else. But to be that place, that, to be in that place that God has designed you for, you have to come to Jesus. And here's the message. Everyone that comes to Jesus gets saved. Everyone who comes to Jesus gets the promise of heaven. So here's the point of the passage. No, for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge. This is our ascertaining of the truth that's here. This is what we understand to be so. That if one died for all, then we're all dead. Now there's a couple different positions in this. But let me give you if the one died for all. First of all, the theology behind this is that one did die for all. So there, listen, there are some sex of society and doctrine that are telling you that Jesus didn't die for everybody, you've got a problem if you believe that. Are you prepared to get your black out and mark out this passage and, and to cut out this passage and say, no, he didn't die for everybody. If you do that, you and I are going to be theologically in a different place. But more than you and I being in a different place, you've got some real problems with lining this up with Scripture. The idea is that he died for everyone. Take your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 7. Ain't God good? We sing an old West Virginia song. Often I can't sing well because I've got a little bit of drainage. But we, I love that. I learned it from my wife, um, from her ancestors that made moonshine. I don't know. I'm just kidding. Um, but it goes, ain't God good to give us so many blessings undeserving. That's what we are. We ought to thank him, love and praise him a little more today and a whole lot more tomorrow. Sorry, Jody, I slid there. I shouldn't have. I'm going to repent. But ain't God good? Get a hold of it and let it get a hold of you that God is good. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, he died for all. Amen? Verse 72, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men. Listen to who that mediator is. Listen to that person that makes a path to be saved. The man, Christ Jesus, doesn't stop there. Describes what he's done. Who gave himself a ransom. Two words after that, what does it say? He gave himself a ransom for all. 
to be testified in due time whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle and a, <laughs> impossible and an apostle I speak the truth in Christ and lie not a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity and here you have the scope of what you're reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 the love of Christ constrains me it's what's put me in the ministry. It's what's made me a voice for the gospel. It's what's made me a voice to speak the truths of the word of God. Now I stand behind this pulpit, but you are that minister. It's not just this guy behind this pulpit. But Paul said this is what controlled his life. This is what gave him direction. Now can you get distracted with life? Can you get distracted on things that you should not be distracted with? Well, yes. Yes. Before we go there, two other passages. I've got to be quick because I, I got to move. So I'm going to read these to you. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins. You know how it says it there? For also of the sins. What does it say? Of the whole world. Does that mean everybody is going to be saved and universalism is true and everybody's going to be in heaven? No! It means that the grace that God has offered to one, He's offered to everyone. It means the opportunity to know redemption, to know reconciliation, has been offered to every person. And that message is for the lost person in this room or online, but it certainly was true for everybody here that got saved. 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 and 6, for there is one God and one mediator. I read that already. Amen. It's good to read again though. All right. <laughs> all right. So if one died for all, then we're all dead. Here's where there is some theological difference of interpretation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to tell you a little principle that I've lived by that helps guide in this. Uh, at least the way I'm going to present it to you this morning. When the plain reading of scripture makes sense, seek no other sense. Okay? So there's, as I read this passage and compare it with scripture, there's a, a natural outworking of this that I think is true. And that's what I'm going to give to you. I'm just letting you know that there are two different veins of theology based on the idea of then we're all dead. I'll give you what I think it's not, and I'm going to speak with grace in this. Some people think what it is, but what I disagree with, is that then we're all dead means then that everybody needs to die to themselves in kind of a message for believers. Well, that's exactly what's coming up, but I don't think that that's what this means. I think what it means, and I think it's said well in the translation that we have, the King James, and that is that we're all dead. It means that death is universal. I think that's what the passage means, that the sentence of universal death is on every last person. So then what this does for us is it magnifies the gospel again. So does death happen? Is anybody going to avoid it? Somebody died this week. Somebody big in name died this week. Who died? Did you hear about Queen Elizabeth dying? Even, I think I read in the news, even Putin 
called and gave some kind of a, a statement about uh, her dying. You know what I thought? With dignity, I'm not disrespecting who she was as a lady, but this is, the, this is I don't know if it's a preacher thought, I don't know what, I'm just saying, my thought was, there go all of us. I don't care who you are on the planet. It just doesn't matter who you are on the planet. That's where you're going and you need a Savior. The idea of the universality of that, I'm going to read it for us and you, you can catch up. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. I'm going to begin, but you can catch up. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you hath he quickened. The word quickened there means to be made alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. We had the sentence of death upon us. Wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. We understand that to be Satan. The spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. Among whom, listen to this. Also, we all had our conversation and partook in that and in, in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and where, were by nature the children of wrath even as others. That's who we are outside of Christ. And then you have this grand conjunction in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened or made us alive together with Christ. And here's the phrase, by grace ye are saved. Amen, people. Amen. So here's the thought. The love of Christ squeezes me into control. It pressures me into control where the holy God of heaven grabs my fat little face, puts me eyeball to eyeball with him, and my eyes are darting this way and that. He says, do you understand my love for you? Do you understand the focus I have for you in life? Now, by the way, that's why I talked about the politics just a little bit earlier. And I appreciate, again, the difference in the body. And I appreciate the way in which we're all differently involved and engaged in that. But I want to tell you, there are some theological sets that are saying that we get involved in that process because we're trying to set up God's kingdom and we're trying to be an agent to make righteousness happen in the world. And, and the truth is, that's not really the focus. That's fruit on the tree. The focus is that we are to live for Christ who died for us. That our lives belong to him. So therefore, we go from this first part of control to consecration in verse 15. Now we're at 11.52 and I'm going to try. Uh, uh, here, no, I don't know what you think. I have no idea. I, I, sometimes I, just because I'm insecure often as, as a communicator, I often think, man, I wish I'd have been able to do that better. Because I, in some respect, I think of you coming here and you've heard Verse 14 this morning. And I wonder about those things. Boy, I sure wish we would have gotten more into that passage. But there is so much 
that we're going to miss if I just burn past these doctrines. And verse 15 has every bit of that potential. In other words, verse 15 is a message to itself, and here it is at 1153. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to surprise junior church. We're going to get done before them. I'm not going to go to verse 15 because verse 15 is consecration. We're going to talk about this consecration, but here's, here's what I'm going to close with then is Pastor Phil and I get ready to travel. One of, the, one of the things that I need prayer about is that I believe that God has given us a burden that we ask this question fundamentally. We had this conversation, Monty, Phil, and I had this conversation this week. And I directly asked him as a uh, brother to brother, as a scope of reference theologically, am I right? If our doctrine doesn't drive what we do, then we shouldn't be doing it. But if, if doctrine does drive what we do, then we better get about it. So my emotion comes because of the passion behind the doctrine. We are in a place as a society where laborers for the harvest are dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. And here's what you're going to face and is already being faced across the country. There are believers that want churches and don't have them. Our live streaming service was never intended to do this. But there are people watching our services, not in droves. We're not, you know, we're not like, and that's not the idea. It's not like we're uh, some kind of a popularity contest. But there are people that are watching this service every week because they don't have churches in their area. And somehow they've gotten connected to us and to the degree that we can minister there, praise the Lord. And Judy, you're watching right now. And you know what I'm talking about. There are a lot of books that have been written on how we got here. There's a lot of deep thinkers that have tried to get their mind around it. I think sometimes we simply get too deep and miss the plain writing of Scripture. The plain writing of Scripture is that God has called every one of us to be sold out for Him. That doesn't mean you stand behind this pulpit to be right with God. But I am saying that this idea of consecration that we're going to be speaking about is something that our generation is going to have to answer. Because it's not just coming, it's here. The dearth of pastors. Matter of fact, are you with me? I need your eyeballs and I need your prayer. Because here's the thing. I've been a part of something for some time. It's been, it's been ever since we were beginning this ministry, the burden of church planting. It's, it's been a passion behind ours that we want to see churches planted. And is God still doing that today? Praise God that he is. 
But I've been in scope of reference with other pastors who've been weighing over the dilemmas that we're finding ourselves in today. And there's a shift that's happening, and I believe that it's led of the Holy Spirit because as I talk to other pastors, what's happening is we're all speaking the same language without talking to each other. And here's what we're saying is while we believe that there do need to be churches started today, that's not the greater dilemma. The greater dilemma is that we don't have pastors to take the churches that are there. Now, what does that mean? What does that tangibly mean? It literally means, quite often, churches are closing their doors and ceasing to exist. Now, where two or three are gathered, is God in their presence? Does that necessarily constitute a church? No. It constitutes the body of Christ. It doesn't constitute a church. A church has administratively been designed by God to carry out the Great Commission that involves pastors, deacons, and the body. The healthy church is going to have all three of those components. What I'm saying is you're missing those components today. Now, Pastor Phil said this in the announcements. And by the way, um, a lot of times churches try to call out their announcements and say, you know, that wastes time. Even in our announcements, they're meant to, for the glory of God and the worship of God because you find things there that are important. And that is um, this idea is that what's happening for many churches is we're looking at the problem and we're simply doing this. Man, that sure is a problem. And what's really striking me is that while there may be a problem, God hasn't left us directionless or powerless on what to do. There are two major scopes in which God has called his church to engage. Number one, who is it that actually puts preachers and ministers and servants to the ground to do the work? Who is it that does that? It is God that does it. So I can't call anybody. You can't call anybody. But God has called all of us. And he says, while the laborers are few, he says, the harvest is plenteous. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. So you know what, folks? We've got to start talking about this more and more in this place right here. Praying that God would bring laborers into the harvest and be servants of God in whatever capacity he's called them to be. But we are also called to do something else. We are called not only to pray, we are called to prepare them. And this is where I think churches have sometimes administratively lost their way doctrinally. So doctrine should direct the administration. So I've got a question for you. Everybody with me? I'm, I'm hoping you are because this is a church, the entire church thing, okay? Do you believe a church should be about the business of trying to train pastors for the ministry? Whose primary responsibility is that? Is it a college? Is it a camp? 
It's churches. So I, saw, I, I spoke with someone this week. And they said something that has just stuck hard with me. And here it is. If a church is not doing this, then what are you doing? If a church is not doing this, then what are you doing? Now, I don't mean it's either or. I think it's both and. I think ministries are being faithful to teach the word of God. I think churches are being faithful to disciple and to point people to Christ. But where we have stopped is having an administrative arm. A plan to actually not just wag your head. But do something about it. To that end, had a conversation with the deacons two weeks ago. You know that we have an internship program that we have people come and train in ministry. We often say it this way, and don't get us wrong, this is not proud or condescending. We don't have interns because we need them. We have a very faithful, strong serving body because of you. But we have interns here on purpose so that we can train them in ministry so that we can give them the doctrine behind the administration of the church so that they lead churches and sell out to serve the Lord in a way that is doctrinally founded. So we are proposing, we are proposing based on that doctrine that we do something. And here's what we're proposing. We've said before, it's a good thing to give a love gift to a fellow missionary, a fellow church planter who comes through. Do you think it's a shot in their arm when they get $2,500? And we don't control that, you do. When we take love offerings, we give them faithfully, we pull them out of, out of our pockets, and we give them what you gave them. And typically, a guest speaker coming through, it happened last week, you guys gave the stewards $2,600. I have his letter at home. It says the same thing that all of them say. They were shocked. It's what, you know, the idea is a very large offering from what they normally see. Okay, good. Praise God. We want that to happen. I don't want to see that stop. Amen. But I want to give you an idea. Many churches think that they can't bring somebody on to train them because they don't have the finances to do so. So here's what we're proposing. We're proposing that we as a church set aside somewhere between $2,000 and $3,000 to give to two different ministries to match dollar for dollar what they would give an intern pastor to bring alongside their ministry. And what that does, it allows that pastor of that ministry to personally train that intern it allows that pastor to have help in ministry to do the ministry while that intern is there. It allows that church to minister to that intern to teach them ministry. And it allows that relationship to be built between that pastor and that intern so that often when they're in school, when they get out of school, they already have a scope of ministry where they could go and be a help. I want to tell you, there's hardly a way that that doesn't win exponentially. And that is far greater than just giving him a financial gift.
So we're talking about doing that with two, two ministries. In the past, our internship program has had $5,000 set aside for interns. We're talking about increasing that to ten. Why? Because we want to be in a position, we actually need it to be more than that, but we want to be in a position of not having an intern just for a summer. But what we would like to see in our future is having a program that is one to three years long where at its end, a person who is trained for ministry is ordained in ministry. And I don't want that to be a rare occurrence here. Our time is done, but I, I'm just saying if we are not doing this, then what are we doing? So you probably got more than you bargained for today. But folks, in short, God has given us a great calling. He's directed and told us what to do. But it comes down to the seat of where you are this morning. So it's high time for each believer in this room to get over the idea that you're insignificant in ministry. It's high time that we got really focused about what God wants us to do. And I'm asking that we as a church partner together. And let's pray, but let's do.